You're listening to Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be complained about by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, January 13th. Friday the 13th, John. It's episode number 50. 50 is like a big episode, so maybe it'll counteract the fact that it is the 13th. I'm sure you're not superstitious. Uh, Harvest, though, one of our first sponsors, and Rack Space, another sponsor. We'll tell you about more of those as we continue with our program today. We also should mention that bandwidth for this episode is provided by vidmeup.com, a free service that allows you to create your own video site, your videos, your branding, vidmeup.com. How are you, John? Syracuse. I'm doing good. Do you know what what uh, occasion this anniversary is? Or this episode is? Now um, that I've just told you. Well, I my well, my understanding from people on Twitter is that this is a apparently it's been a year. It's been one year. Almost. The the very first show we recorded was was released to iTunes anyway. The date in iTunes is the fourteenth of January last year. It's pretty cool. And today is the thirteenth. So this is our one year anniversary. I did a little uh Little dance. Select select all in uh, iTunes. Dance or select all in iTunes. They're very similar. Uh, <laughs> to figure out what the total amount of audio that had been released for this show. Oh. And iTunes said 2.8 days. So wow. <laughs> 67 hours of audio. Sure does feel like it. <laughs> it does. Is it, you feel the weight of every one of those minutes sitting on your shoulders? I, I do. Yeah. yeah. It seems like a lot to me, too. <laughs> I mean, it's... Uh been a good year though 50 yep. episodes you know it's like well what is the 50th anniversary what do you do for that is that is uh, that is that a silver particle board i don't know what <laughs> i'm not sure styrofoam i don't i can't keep track of these. something something like that all right now, we you, got a lot know, of... I, one thing i want to mention i don't and, and you said you don't know if we'll get to it all right but i have a i have a clip queued up yes uh, before the show john said dan there's a clip that i would like to play is that possible? And I said, of course it's possible. I will do everything in my power not to also play other clips throughout the show. I know that will be hard for that you. Will I, be pre- a, I appreciate your restraint. Be a huge challenge. For example, when you make a point, I will, do it. I will do my best not to have applause. You know, if that kind of thing, I will not, yeah. I will not, I will restrain, right. fully restrain myself. The name of the show is not the morning zoo. Okay. Not yet. No. Despite, <laughs> Despite my uh, suggestion, it is not called the morning zoo. Yeah. So we have a ton of feedback. I, I think the last show where we talked about, I, I rambled about video game stuff incoherently for a while. And then at the very end, did a little tour of uh, video game controllers. Uh, the, and the point of that was to, I, I did have a point. My point was to complain about the PlayStation controller. But to do that, first, I felt like I needed to provide some context to to uh, illuminate what I was I was saying. And we got a tremendous amount of feedback. A lot of feedback. Mostly on the controller stuff, but on all sorts of video game related stuff. I don't know if this is the most feedback we ever got for an episode, but I think it's the highest volume of information and quality feedback. Like, if you just do an opinion show, or, or I don't know, the other shows I talk about, we get feedback, but it's kind of like agree, disagree, or have your own opinion. But this was just filled with people. They wanted to tell their stories about their experiences with controllers to add information, to tell me things that I missed. Huge amount of feedback. Uh, I didn't want to do a whole other show about 
video game controllers because I feel like people might be getting sick of it. But for the people who are getting sick of it, I can tell you that we've had other long stretches like this where we did like three or four shows in a row about programming languages. You know, I'm, I'm here to tell you that we'll get through it together. Like it, it will end and there will be another topic. Uh, and so and maybe that will be the topic that you like uh, in, in several more. So hang in there. I think we have to do one more. I'm trying to constrain this to just the discussion of the previous episode about mm. video game controllers because I'm not going to, if I expand it out into like, let's all talk about video games forever and ever, like that's, that's a whole show. It's a whole big thing. So I'm just going to try to confine the feedback to the stuff we talked about on the last show. Uh, but even before we get to that, I've got feedback several shows back, or maybe I can't even keep track of how many shows back this was. Uh, so let's start here. This is from Matthew Bogart. Uh, he's calling back to the episode where we talked about uh, music during coding. Uh, whether we like to listen to music during coding, um, mostly about the types of the things we can we can do while listening to music with lyrics without lyrics. Like, can you write prose when you listen uh, listen to music? Can you do programming? Can you debug? Uh, and he brought up uh, a, a passage from a book about Richard Feynman. It's called "What Do You Care What Other People Think?" And the subtitle is "Further Adventures of a Curious Character." There are several books about Richard Feynman. He was a very smart fellow and a very interesting fellow, and had a fabulous accent that I love. Uh, and, uh, this, this is like stories from his life. I think it's, what does that say? It's Richard Feynman as told by Ralph Layton. I don't know what as told by means. I guess they're relaying stories that he told them, but it's written kind of in first person as if Richard Feynman was saying it uh, himself. And this chapter that he pointed me to is called, it's as simple as one, two, three. Uh, I have a link to the chapter, which you can download for free, uh, as a PDF, from Caltech for some reason, just just the chapter. And there's also an Amazon link to the book if you want to read the whole book. And this little anecdote was about Richard Feynman telling a bunch of his friends and colleagues all the things that he can do while he's counting to himself. Like he can keep an accurate count. Uh, and still, I tell you when a minute has elapsed while he's doing many other things. Uh, and he said the only thing that he absolutely couldn't do while counting to himself was talk. But he could do tons of other stuff, including read. And one of the other people there said, I don't believe that you can read when you're counting to yourself. So they tested them. They would say, uh, you know, read this passage aloud or to yourself or whatever and count in your head and tell us when you get to one minute. And this other guy named John Tukey said, I don't believe you can read. Uh, but he said, I'll bet you that I can talk when I'm counting to myself. And Richard Feynman uh, thought that was, you know, uh, interesting that, that he claimed he could do something that he could not. And so they did this, did this competition. And sure enough, this uh, John Tukey guy uh, could count to himself fairly accurately while he's uh, while he's talking, which is something that Richard Feynman couldn't do. And they and they tried to puzzle it out, see what's going on here. And what they figured out was that when Tukey was counting in his head while he was while he was talking, he was he was uh, doing it in a different way than Feynman. What he was doing was visualizing a tape with numbers on it slowly sliding by in his mind and thus not engaging the language centers to keep count. Whereas when Richard Feynman was counting his head, he was going one, two, you know, engaging the language centers to count in his own head. Uh, and I thought this was fascinating that, like, here are these geniuses who are uh, probing the limits of what their uh, minds can do and finding out that different minds do, can do what we think of the same, you know, the same thing, oh, counting your head. Everyone does that the same way. Well, it's, um, it's amazing diversity of things that go on in people's heads when we think we're all talking about the same thing or not. I think the point of the episode was he was thinking about what, you know, and that's for something simple like counting. Imagine the diversity of things that go on in people's heads when doing complex mathematics or the other things that these guys did uh, for a living and for their research. It must be such a huge uh, 
divergence between what everyone thinks is doing the same thing, working out an equation or whatever, that, that the things that happening, things that are happening in people's brains are so wildly different. Uh, so I recommend reading as many books by Richard Feynman as you can. I've read a couple of them. And if you, even if you don't buy the book, there's lots of anecdotes you can find on the web. It's very interesting. So that the, thank you to Matthew Bogart for that. Uh, I'll do a little bit on maths. Maths, as we know, is what the, the uh, English people... I don't even know what to call them, so they'll just yell at me about that. Would you, would you like to, to try to categorize the people who live on the various islands to the north of France? Uh, they no, are the British people, the English people? I, th- I, think, I think British sounds good. All right. I'll just say people in the UK, uh, they say math, and in America we say math without the S. Well, I, we did get one good explanation, and you probably have a note as to who sent it, but I can't remember if we saw it on Twitter or if it was sent via the contact form. But they said that maths, plural like that, is short for mathematics. Yes, I, I thought that was obvious. I didn't write the name down because, yes, of course we know. I mean, you, did you know it was short for mathematics? I did. Yes, but I, having it put that way in that context makes sense in that the, you're shortening the word mathematics and it shorts down to maths. Yeah. As opposed to just math. No, that's, I know the explanation. I had, and I'd heard that many times. So many, many people told us that as if uh, we didn't know that. Th- and then that's why it makes, that's the, the canonical explanation of like, well, of course it should be maths because it's mathematics short. And they give many other examples of other words that ends in S. And when you shorten them, you keep the S, you know, we know that it was just not the way it works in America. And it sounds very strange to us. That was the only point of that thing. Not that we didn't under, that we thought it was, it does sound crazy to us, but not crazy as in we can't think of a logical reason for it, but just because if you're brought up Hearing something in a particular way, any other way sounds crazy. That's why. Uh, I did put a link in the show notes to a wonderful British explanation of maths, if you would like to know, mm-hmm. uh, from the British television program Look Around You, which reveals that maths is actually an acronym. And it stands for, and I'll try to do this justice, Mathematical Anti-Telharsic Harfardum Septomen. <laughs> so I would suggest everyone take a look at Look Around You. It's an excellent <laughs> program, very educational. Uh, and brought to you by these fine people on those islands to the north of France. All right. Uh, before we get to controllers, we have one piece of feedback on the show we did a while back that covered some of the history of Nintendo. Jonathan Flynn writes in to tell us that uh, the NES didn't quite come out of nowhere. Like when I talked about the show, I said they made playing cards and then they were trying to find a way to make money and they, they had done the love hotels and the instant rice and all these other things. Uh, and he wanted to point out that there are a bunch of things Nintendo did that were not quite as divergent as love hotels and instant rice and taxi services that were vaguely toy related. So there's a site called the URL's blog.beforemario.com, and it has a huge list of the toys and games that Nintendo made before making the NES. And there's like a little baseball type game that you hold in your hand, a mechanical baseball game, a roller coaster thing, some Lego looking toys. Uh, a love tester, yes, it's an electronic device at least. Uh, toy guns, you can check out that page and see all the toys they made before they uh, got into Nintendo. So it's clear they were going in the toy direction. They just hadn't really found anything that stuck until they got to the, the NES. All right, time for controllers. So, first some general feedback on controllers. I... I mentioned the octagonal surround around joysticks in the past show and how I like that on Nintendo's controllers. According to Andy Herbert, 
the the technical term for that is octagonal restrictor gate, and they existed in arcade machines long before they existed in NES home devices, uh, which makes sense if you think about it the way joysticks work on arcade machines. Uh, even if it wasn't visible on the surface, it was underneath. So Pac-Man had a four-way one, so with the Pac-Man game, uh, it had what it looked like an analog stick, but there was a restrictor gate under there that made it clear when you were going exactly up, left, right, so on and so forth. And other ones had eight-way uh, gates on them. Uh, some people like those things, some people don't. We'll talk more about that uh, as we go on to later sections. Uh, and controllers, controller prototypes, which I didn't really talk about, are actually very interesting. Uh, and this comes up because in finding links for the further stuff we're going to talk about in controllers, I found a lot of uh, old links to uh, prototype controllers. And I remember being very excited about seeing what the new controllers would look like on the consoles that actually changed their controller from generation to generation. Uh, so I put in some links to the prototype controllers for uh, the NES and uh, even, even some prototype controllers for the PlayStation. I want to pull some of those up now so I can look at them and discuss them. Um, so the Sony prototype controllers that I'm looking at that I put links into are just foam mock-ups. They're not operational or anything. And they do look very similar to the 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 current PlayStation controller uh, or the original PlayStation controller. It's got a D-pad on the left, the little horns, two circles, two shoulder buttons. The interesting part to me is that the buttons on the button portion of the controller in, in at least one model aren't exactly north, south, east, west perpendicular to the straight line body of the controller. One of them has four buttons and arranged in a very strange kind of like a burners on a stove type pattern. Uh, and they're tilted on an angle to sort of like the angle your thumb might lay over them. So it shows that in the very beginning, before the PlayStation even existed as a real product and they were just making foam mock-ups, they did have controllers that, you know, had some acknowledgement of how you might hold them versus simply being, uh, you know, a, a, a line drawing with everything at right angles in some CAD program somewhere. Uh, and I also put in some links to the GameCube controller prototypes. You can see that they publicly showed a bunch of stuff where they fiddled around with the buttons on their controllers. Uh, the handles used to be much longer and wider. Uh, instead of having a D-pad below the big analog stick, they had a model with that had a red button down there. Uh, the kidney-shaped buttons that surrounded the giant A button on the GameCube controller used to all be kidneys instead of making the B button round. There was a couple different models that they were actually willing to show to the public that looked very similar, uh, but, but, but were different in subtle ways. So it shows that Nintendo was constantly refining this, playtesting, refining, playtesting, and refining. All right. I'm going to try hard on this last name. What do you do with it when a last name has two L's in a row? It depends uh, if it's a in the beginning, Spanish name, then it's a Y sound, right? Oh, let's see. I didn't know that. But I don't know if it's a Spanish. I don't know who you're about so the to The first read. name is Marcelino. Does oh. that sound Spanish to you? It could be. Marcelino Llano? Yeah. All right. We'll go, go with that. that. Yeah. Uh, so he wanted to add, I was talking about why, why the NES controller is a rectangle and the straight lines and these things. And he says that sometimes the forms of shapes emerge from the convenience of the machines that produce them. Uh, so extruding and revolution processes, molds, restrictions, and sometimes get in the way of what you really want to make. Uh, and that's especially true back in the past, right? So the machines that we have now are much more complicated and advanced than they were then. So one of the reasons, it's not just industrial designers like straight lines and everything because they're easy to draw with their pencils and their, you know, drafting desks in 1962. It's, it's because... 
and, you know, computers can do curved lines and everything, but sometimes you have to make something that can be made by the machines. There are restrictions on, well, we've got, we've got an extruding machine, and the, the rules of the extruding machine is you can't have walls thinner than this, and you can't have curves sharper than that, and you can't have sharp parts like this because that's where cracks will form, and, or you have some sort of routing machine that can only do certain radiuses, and there are many restrictions imposed by the machines, and so you want to get something that's cheap to manufacture, and you know, the thing that makes it cheap is you have an existing machine that does that type of move, and you have to work within the constraints of that machine. And he makes a point at the end that uh, uh, modern companies, especially companies like Apple, are, are changing that by instead of saying, well, what kind of machines do you have for shaping you know, plastic or metal, and then we'll try to design something that can be cheaply produced by those machines, they do it the opposite. Uh, as he says, they create the machine to create the shape. So Apple decides what they want the thing to look like, and then they hire someone to build a machine that will make that shape efficiently for them. Like so, it's 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 the reverse process, and obviously that's much more expensive and involves a big capital investment and tooling and everything like that. But when you're a big company like Apple, you can do it. Uh, but especially back decades ago, I think manu- ease of manufacturing and the type of processes available, especially for a uh, mass market product like a game console that had to be mass produced and sturdy and also had to be cheap. Uh, those were definitely factors. My wife was listening to the show yesterday and mm-hmm. the, the two bits that she wanted to add was to remind me that the listeners cannot see my hand movements. So apparently during the entire controller... You were gesturing? Yes, gesturing with my hands to show how a controller will be held, mm. what shape it is, sketching out things in the air with my hands. So I apologize for people who could not see my hands, but trust me that they definitely added a, a lot to the explanation. <laughs> maybe maybe we could do, I mean, you know, most of the time we don't do video. We're fully capable of doing video. Maybe the next time that we do something like that, we could record all of your, all of your movements and gestures. Well, I don't know if that's worth the, the downsides of uh, video, but yeah, Italians always talk with their hands and I'm no exception, especially when trying to describe something that you hold. All right. So let's get to the meat of the controller stuff. Finally, Controller omissions. Lots of people wanted to write in to tell me about the controllers that I left out or the things that I left out about what I was talking about. Right. Andrew Yang writes in to tell me that I did not mention the shoulder buttons on the SNES. I thought I did, but I went back and listened, and he's right. I didn't. I should have. Uh, they, and the SNES did have shoulder buttons on it. Uh, they, that could have been some of the explanation for the curved corners because your fingers kind of wrap around, but the shoulder buttons were mostly on top. Uh, so I put in the show notes link to what those shoulder buttons look like. Uh, Sega Genesis controller. That's one that a lot of people wrote in about and that I definitely should not have omitted. Uh, I don't know how that slipped my mind there, uh, but in retrospect, it's definitely one of the controllers that I should have talked about in my tour of uh, of significant controllers. Obviously, I couldn't hit every controller. Like I knew I wasn't going to be able to put in something about every single controller that... Uh, that people wanted to hear about. But the, the Genesis was fairly significant, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it now. Uh, I put the picture in the show notes. If you can pull that up, you'll know what I'm talking about. And if you're listening, you can pull it up and know what I'm talking about, unless you're had a Sega Genesis and you already know. How, so, do, they get, how do they get to the show notes? So it's 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash number of the episode. Right. In this case, 5050. Yep. And we want to and say thanks to, uh, to helpspot.com for making the show notes possible. Yeah, and on the show notes, the last episode had the longest show notes, I think, by far of any episode oh, yeah. we've ever done. Totally. Huge list of links. Uh, it was great. I think this episode will also have a big list of links. They already added a whole bunch on there. So the Genesis controller predates the, the, the SNES controller. It has a D-pad on the left, 
uh, but it's a, it's an eight-way pad because you've got the regular D-pad and then you've also got like the 45s that you can tip it at. On the right, it's got three buttons in kind of an arc uh, on an angle to where so your thumb can sweep across them, and it's got a start button up there. But the shape of it, it's not a rectangle. It's kind of like a boomerang with tiny little sort of nubs instead of horns. Like they weren't ready to go full-fledged <laughs> modern controller horns poking out the bottom, but it does have these little nubs that you could like loop your fingers around to get a little leverage on the buttons. Uh, it's much more... It, it's definitely more uh, ergonomic than the SNES controller, which had things kind of at right angles here and there, uh, and it have, uh, was basically a straight body. But it's also kind of more organic, and this is where things get confusing. Like There's a, there's a distinction between ergonomic and organic. Organic shapes is like, oh, there's no straight lines, no right angles, and people tend to think things that have organic shapes are ergonomic, but a lot of times things that have organic shapes are done for style reasons. Like, the bodies of most modern cars have shapes that you could say are organic. They're shaped like uh, like a sack filled with water or muscles stretching over something. Or they're curved shapes that remind you of living things. But no one is holding a car in their hand. You know, it's not, it's not that shape. You know, aerodynamics has something to do with it too, but it's not that shape because someone's gripping it. And in the same way, a lot of times, consumer electronic products are made with organic shapes because we have the manufacturing technology to be able to break out of straight lines and right angles, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're manufactured with ergonomics in mind for something that's going to be hold. They didn't, you know, say, well, what does this feel like to hold and what's the best way to uh, let it be held uh, securely and in a way that the fingers can touch all the things that they're supposed to touch a lot of times it's an organic shape that just looked really cool to the designer. So I think the Genesis has a little bit of that. It definitely has a lot of ergonomics in it with the, the layout of the buttons and how they're arcing with your thumb. And I think the little horns there are also uh, kind of an, an ergonomic thing. But overall, like, the, why is the whole thing curved? Why is the, you know, why are the top and bottom curved? What does that really add to it? Or is that, I don't know, it's kind of like on the borderline. I'm suspicious because that generation of consoles, a lot of the consoles themselves also had organic shapes and no one's holding the consoles themselves when they're playing. So a lot of it is also fashion. Uh, but Genesis was definitely a significant controller and it was being much more daring than the SNES controller. In general, Sega was trying to be more daring than, uh, than Nintendo during that period. Because Nintendo was the incumbent and they were trying to uh, usurp them. Yes, and uh, self-described Sega fanboy Marco Arment writes to tell me that uh, it was shameful that I should that I left out the SNES, the, the Genesis controller. Uh, so he loved the uh, awesome eight-way round D-pad. Uh, and then he had many other uh, comments on game consoles. Most of them are out of the scope of uh, this discussion, but I'm glad that... Uh, I, I don't know, is this, is this outing Marco as a gamer? I don't think you guys have ever really talked about video games on his show. No, we never really have. Never he's really not, have. He doesn't think he's much of a gamer. He says, he, you know... He hasn't owned many of these consoles, but apparently he's played them as a child. So the Genesis has a special place in his heart, and I apologize to people who uh, have great affection for the Genesis Genesis that I should have con- included its controller in there. What made you choose the specific controllers that you talked about? Why why were certain ones omitted? Um, I mean that's a good question. Like it seemed when I did it, I didn't spend a lot of time fretting about which ones should I include. I was like, oh, I should know which ones I should include. Um, and if I, and again, I don't know how Genesis got lopped out. Probably because I was just building up so many links and tabs that I was like, oh, I got to trim this, and then just skipped over it. Uh, mostly, what I was looking for was popular consoles. So it's like I'm, I'm going to omit the obscure stuff, right? So mm-hmm. things that sold in large numbers. 
Uh, and if there was ever a conflict, I would try to pick the most popular one from that generation. And I wanted to show a progression. Now, as I got to the modern consoles, I tried to do all of them. So I did 360, PS3, and Wii. Or, well, you know, uh, a little bit of the Wii GameCube type thing there. But for the older consoles, there were so many ones that most people are, uh, won't remember anymore. And if if the points that I wanted to make were were made by the more popular console controller, I didn't need to cover the more obscure one. So one of the other ones people talked about was a Dreamcast controller. Uh, and there was another one that I skipped. Uh, if I had talked about the Dreamcast controller, it probably would have been a sidebar because I didn't particularly like the Dreamcast controller. I thought it was uncomfortable because it had, I don't know what you would even call it. I think I put some pictures in the show notes about this, but it had kind of like, the underside was like two long rails that were parallel to each other that you gripped. And it seemed very awkward to me. Like you curled your fingers under the rim of them instead of wrapping your hand around something. You know what I mean? Yes. You see that picture in the show notes? No, I do. I don't know if you ever use a Dreamcast controller. Uh, and it also had the, the uh, what was that thing called? The VMU it was called the, the VMS in Japan. This is all from Wikipedia. And the VM in Europe is the visual memory unit. It had this little slidey in PDA looking thing that was a memory card, but it also had an LCD screen on it that you could, you know, take out of one controller and put into another. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't a color LCD screen, I don't think. Uh, it, it looked like a little Game Boy itself. You can see that in the, in the Wikipedia picture. That We could talk forever about the Dreamcast controller and why the Dreamcast didn't catch on. Uh, a lot of people did like the Dreamcast controller. In my limited use of it, I found it very uncomfortable to use, very uncomfortable to hold those rails like that. Like If you look at the shape of the controller from the top, it's one of the few controllers that I can think of where the horns or the little like lower things angle in instead of out. Obviously, your hands are coming from a wider stance than the controller, so it seems like anything on a controller should angle out, but these were the underside was like parallel. Uh, I found it very awkward, but uh, I left that one out just because it, it is a sort of obscure, less successful thing, and the, the point I wanted to make was not, uh, wouldn't be helped by uh, exploring another controller that I thought had some problems. Uh, but it did definitely have a lot of innovations there. And, and that's true of all of the ones I skipped. I mean, I put a link to the game consoles uh, page at Wikipedia in the show notes. Uh, and people were in about Sega Master System, Atari Jaguar, TurboGrafx-16, and there's other obscure ones that no one wrote in about that I also could have thrown in there. You know, the M2. Does anyone in the chat room know what the M2 is without Googling it? Probably not. Uh, 3DO, people have at least heard of that. CDI, oh, lots of awful unsuccessful game machines with controllers that were strange mutant uh, derivations <laughs> of the successful ones or sometimes very innovative with innovative and scare quotes because they were, you know, innovative to the point of being awful. Uh, it, it's, it's too big a field. So I really just wanted to hit on like the major players. Uh, and that's why I picked what I did. But Gen- Genesis, I think that Genesis was important because it was a sort of a rebel incarnation of the SNES, where it's like, well, Nintendo dominated with the NES, we're going to come out with the Genesis, we're going to come out to market before the SNES, and we're going to be more daring with our controller designs. That's why they should have been included to show uh, that someone who didn't have, you know, they had the Sega Master System, but they were they were trying to usurp the leader, and they were willing to be more innovative in their controller design to do so. And we've seen that, you know, in modern history, with like the Wii, yeah, trying to usurp the dominant force of the PlayStation by being very innovative with the controller. Uh, Logan Hall writes in to say that the Dreamcast controller should have been included because it was a, a big influence on the Xbox. Uh, Microsoft had a, a significant partnership with Sega uh, on the Dreamcast project. At one point, I think they were trying to make the Dreamcast run Windows. Uh, I don't know if it ever actually did run any kind of Windows software, but 
there was a relationship between those two companies, and uh, a lot of people have uh, see a resemblance in the Xbox controller and the uh, Dreamcast controller. If you squint, you can kind of see it, I guess. Uh, certainly, they didn't do the VMU or anything like that in the, in the Xbox controller, though. Uh, the other thing I got a lot of feedback about, besides omissions, uh, were non-standard controllers, controllers that were not included with systems, and I was intentionally avoiding all those, because like, if you think the world of standard controllers is big, the world of aftermarket third-party controllers, or even first-party controllers that were sold after the fact, that's just enormous. Uh, but there are a couple of uh, significant innovations that are worth talking about, I think. One of them was the uh, NES Max. God, do I not have the NES Max open in a thing here? I gotta find that. Did you ever play with the NES Max? Never. Now, when it came up, I had I had heard of it before, but I had the wrong thing in my head. I was thinking of the NES Advantage, which is the big uh, arcade style joystick. Did you ever play with that? I've seen that. I've not used that. All right, let me actually pull this up because somehow I did not get this thing where it should be. Uh, so this was uh, Rian Mernin. Sorry, Rian, if I got that wrong, your first name or last name. Uh, the NES Max looked like an NES controller, but it had kind of horns poking, not not really horns that poked down, but like little, it was like a, a an upside-down U-shape. So in that respect, it was like the Genesis controller, but less organic shape, but with like more prominent horns poking down from it. And it was an aftermarket controller because it had things like uh, turbo buttons on it where you could press that button to make it as if you were firing the A or the B button faster than you could humanly fire it unless you had really, really put in a lot of time with summer games uh, and developed a system of twitching your muscles such that the, the, uh, your finger was moving imperceptibly but repeatedly activating the button. And that was an important skill to have. When the aliens come and someone needs to press a button hundreds or thousands of times a second, somewhere, some kid who had an NES who is now an adult will be ready. But anyway, uh, it had that feature and it also had like this slidey disc thing in the middle of what where the d-pad would be and it had a surrounding circular ring where you could press in the eight different directions uh i never spent any time with this so i don't really know how it would feel to use that little slidey disc thing instead of a d-pad uh, but that's what the aftermarket is for aftermarket is for things that they weren't confident enough in to put in the standard controller but people might enjoy uh a few people might enjoy and might be willing to spend a little bit of extra money to try it out uh, and then the NES Advantage that I had already mentioned uh, was supposed to look like an arcade stick. It had a big joystick with a ball on top of it poking out, just like an arcade machine. And it was a big thing with a metal bottom and rubber feet, and you put it on a tabletop instead of holding it in your hands. And it had two huge buttons, kind of arcade-sized buttons. And it also had turbos on them with dials that you could adjust the rate of the turbos. There were also uh, slow-motion things where it would... Simulate slow motion by repeatedly sending the signal for the, I forget if it's a start or a select key, but one of the keys that would pause the game. So they would like pause, play, pause, play, pause, play to slow down the motion in games that you were having trouble beating because you uh, lack the hand-eye coordination to <laughs> successfully pass that particular level in Mega Man. And I'm sure many kids appreciated that. Although it was kind of a hack. John Fulkers writes in to tell me that the, I gave the PlayStation controllers a little bit short shrift uh, when I talked about the Dual Shock, because there was actually an analog stick uh, for the PlayStation before the Dual Shock, and that was the PlayStation Analog Joystick, as it was called. Uh, it looks just like a Dual Shock, but the handles are longer. 
Um, and it was released for a bunch of Japanese titles that supposedly benefited from analog control. Uh, but it was kind of like it was kind of weird where you're like, well, can I use the analog sticks for this particular game? Has this game been designed for the analog sticks? Uh, there was apparently three different analog modes that you could put it into. It was kind of, I mean, it was an official product, but it wasn't, it wasn't the complete revolution like uh, the N64 was, where like you know, of course the game works with the analog stick on the N64. Uh, it comes with the system that you're expected to work with. It. This was definitely an aftermarket thing. Uh, and it was released in the United States after it was released in Japan, as things always were done uh, back then. But it's, uh, very shortly after it was released in the United States, the DualShock was released in Japan, and then eventually DualShock came to the U.S. and just wiped out all memory of the analog joystick. Uh, and it can be argued that the dual analog controller... Uh, not the dual analog controller. The, the, I've got it now. The dual analog controller was a... a I swapped the names before. The analog joystick is the name for the thing that I'm about to talk about. So the PlayStation analog joystick was two huge, like, flight stick-looking things poking out of a thing that you put on a table. And it can be argued that the dual analog controller, which was kind of like the dual shock without the shock and longer horns, is simply a miniaturized derivation of the dual analog controller, where they took those two giant analog sticks they had for flight sim games and robot games and put them in miniature form and tacked them onto their uh, controller there. And apparently, even the the dual analog controller even had some sort of rumble feature. So I'm not quite sure why the name Dual Shock only came in later, if the dual analog controller actually had rumble in it. I don't know. Uh, but credit where credit is due, Sony did have analog sticks tacked on in strange locations before the Dual Shock. Uh, and I asked I asked John Folkers because he was talking about this. And he, he said he hated the uh, the dual analog controller. And I'm looking at it. And I'm like, well, other than the longer horns, what was the big deal? It looks doesn't look that much different than the Dual Shock. What was what was worse about it, and why did it sort of become extinct and the Dual Shock took its place? Uh, and he mentioned that the 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 weirdly long horns bothered him. Uh, he didn't like the three different analog modes. There was no push down on the analog stick buttons. I don't see that as a big downside. I think those push down on the analog stick buttons are weird. Uh, the sticks themselves were concave on, on the top, uh, but were slippery instead of having that grippy, grippy rubber, and it only came in gray. So those are his reasons for disliking the uh, the analog. It is kind of like a transitional, like a Neanderthal <laughs> branch of the tree that just died out, and then we had the dual the dual shock wh- whose shape came to dominate. Uh, and speaking of strange shapes that uh, that are sort of dead ends in the evolutionary tree. A lot of people brought up the uh, the Wii Classic controller. Have you ever seen that? Yes, uh, the Wii Classic controller. That was the thing that came out around the time that they announced the ability for you to download the classic, I guess they were SNES and maybe some NES games. And I guess it wasn't as easy or convenient to hold the Wii sideways and use it that way. And there were some, I guess, functions that were missing from it. Is that, is that the premise behind it? It's confusing to me too, because that they did design the Wii controller. So like you said, you could hold it sideways. And if you hold it sideways and you squint, you could say, <laughs> oh, that now there's a D-pad right. and you've got two buttons that are in line with each other. So it kind of looks like an NES controller and you can play, uh, you know, you can download Super Mario Brothers for the NES and, and the Wii Virtual Console and play it on your sideways uh, Wiimote, sure. uh, I believe. At, but they decided they wanted to have a a different controller for that, I guess. And what it looks like, it, it's it's weird. So if, if you look at it, it looks kind of like a blobby lozenge shape 
uh, and it's got a D-pad on the left in the primary control location and four buttons in a squash cross SNES style, A, B, and X, and Y. Uh, and then tucked down below it in sort of the PlayStation analog stick location are two analog sticks. So this weird hybrid, and it's got shoulder buttons and all that stuff, and there's actually a, what is it called? The, the Classic Controller Pro, which is that same controller with two horns sticking out of it. So it's very, it's kind of odd to me. And, and, but the main reason I didn't bring it up is I kind of, all right, so it looks like an SNES controller with two analog sticks, right? And I kind of give it a pass because it's called the Classic Controller, and presumably you're playing classic games with it. So if you're going to play an NES game or an SNES game, it makes sense to have a controller shaped like an NES or SNES because those games are selling to people based on nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And the D-pad is the primary control for NES and SNES games, right? So should it not be in the primary control spot? A lot of people are saying, why didn't you complain about the classic controller? It looks just like a PlayStation controller in terms of layout, uh, albeit without the horns, although the, the Pro version does have the little horns. I, th- I get to pass because it's the classic controller. You're supposed to use uh, the D-pad, to, to, you know, so it should be set up like that. Um, now, the problem comes in where uh, the, the Wii, uh, you can play GameCube games on. And they say, oh, you know, plug in your classic control and you can play GameCube games with it. Right. Well, GameCube games, the analog control was the primary control. And now all of a sudden, you're telling me to play a, a GameCube game with an SNES controller, basically, with analog sticks tacked on? That makes me angry. Uh, <laughs> but the Wii has GameCube controller ports on it. Uh, so I never even considered buying a classic controller because I don't really play a lot of the NES and SNES games. When I play GameCube games, I plug in one of my many GameCube controllers. Uh, and that's a much better experience. I would never play a GameCube game with a classic controller. That would just be very strange. Hmm. Uh, awkward. Uh, but on that topic, a couple people wrote in to tell me, God, I thought I had this name here, but apparently I don't, to tell me that modern-day Wii's... Oh, this is Ben in Norway. Gave me, it was the first one to provide this information, and many others did. Modern-day Wii's do not have GameCube support in them. The 2012 Wiis, if you were to go into a store now and buy a Wii console that had shipped to the store in 2012, uh, they removed GameCube support. There's no more GameCube controller ports on the side. There's no more GameCube memory slots. Uh, nothing. The, the, I don't think the drive will even let you insert a uh, one of those miniature GameCube discs. And I, on the previous episode, we just talked about how backward compatibility is kind of used as a boon to, to get people to upgrade to the next generation while on protecting their investment in old games, but that eventually they always drop it because they say, well, we can make this machine more cheaply uh, if we don't have backward compatibility. It's especially egregious in the case of the Wii, though, because as we discussed, the Wii is really just the same CPU-GPU combination as the GameCube, only higher clock speed and with a few additional features. And then a bunch of other stuff tacked onto it, like Wi-Fi and flash memory and stuff like that. Uh, so it's not like in the case of the PS3, where when they had PS2 compatibility, they had to basically stick an entire PS2 on a single chip inside the PS3. And that's how you get your PS2 compatibility. It's not really compatibility. They just shoved the PS2 on the motherboard along with the PS3 stuff. And it's way cheaper for them to just ditch all that and say, well, here's your PS3. No more PS2 support. We can make this board much cheaper if we just omit all those chips. Uh, in the case of the Wii... I, maybe they could get rid of some I.O. controllers for the memory cards and for the four uh, controller ports. Uh, but I imagine that was all condensed down into a couple of small chips anyway. But the main thing they're getting rid of are all those ports themselves. And I've always heard that 
adding ports, adding connectors or slots or anything is surprisingly expensive on electronics uh, components. And the more of those you can get rid of, the, the you know, it really reduces manufacturing costs uh, much more than you would think it would. It's like, well, what's the big deal? It's just some holes in a case and some metal connectors. Just everything associated with, the, with every connector really does add cost. And there's only so far you can get that cost down, uh, which is, uh, I, always, I always thought was also one of the reasons that Apple wants to reduce the number of ports because, you know, it's the... Every one of those holes, every one of those connectors, and every one of those things that has to be durable enough for someone to stick something in and out of and not catch on fire and not wiggle loose and not corrode and, and be sturdy and have the, you know, the, the correct uh, analog circuitry to avoid arcing and sparks and overloads and all that stuff. And then the I.O. controllers for it, that, that stuff adds up. So it really is a shame, I think, that Nintendo ditched the GameCube support. Uh, but I can kind of see a reason for it if they really just want to drive the cost of the Wii console down, down, further and further. Uh, presumably, they've already got all the chips that make up a Wii consolidated into a very small number. Uh, they're usually pretty good about doing that from the beginning. Actually, I should have put that in the show notes. One of my favorite motherboard, and of course, we all have favorite motherboards, right? Uh, <laughs> me and Steve Jobs. <laughs> One of my favorite motherboards ever uh, was the Nintendo GameCube motherboard. The GameCube may be my favorite console ever in terms of hardware design in terms of balancing cost of manufacturing with the power that you get from it. You know, there's compromises every time you're making something like this. You want to make it cheap enough to buy, you want it to be powerful, but you want it to be easy to program, but you want it to be sturdy and small and not too noisy and just, you know, it's, it's a series of compromises. But underneath all this, it's amazing to me that the, the motherboard for the GameCube is just such a beautiful object. If I could get one of those in a frame, I would. Let me Google it now. Do you know what it looks like offhand? Not offhand. Why don't, why, while you Google it, we're 40 minutes in. Let me do our first sponsor. Okay. Harvest. It's a painless way to track time and keep track of your project budget. Send your clients beautiful professional invoices via email, PDF, or on the web. You can accept the online credit card and check payments and more. And there's even a free companion iPhone and Android app. So you can track time and expenses on the go. Basically, you take a picture of your receipt and uploads right into the app. It's very cool. Uh, and this all integrates seamlessly with your favorite small business apps like, you know, Google Apps, Basecamp, you name it. You can try it free for 30 days, figure out uh, just how it works because it will help you run your business better. In 2012, you don't need a credit card. You don't, you know, they don't tie you into a long-term obligation at all. And here's what you do. You go to getharvest.com slash five by five, getharvest.com slash five by five. Sign up for the free 30-day trial, and after that, use the code 5x5TV. When you check out, you'll get 50% off your first month. you gotta, you got to get in there before January 31st, 2012. Harvest. I was going to say that I think I have on my hard drive somewhere my own personally saved high-resolution copy of, the, of a picture of the GameCube motherboard because I love it so much, and I probably do, so maybe I will actually upload that and put it in the show notes, but for now, I found one on Google Image Search. If you just Google for GameCube motherboard, you'll find it. Uh, so if you look at, like, the PlayStation 1 or 2, or did I do an article on it? Someone, uh, KJ Healing in the chat room, has found, has found an article that I wrote about it. There you go. I wrote a whole article about how much I love the motherboard hmm. uh, from the Fapids blog five years ago. That's why I didn't remember. I'm an old man. Uh, <laughs> so I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, if you look at like the PlayStation 2 or the Xbox motherboard, uh, Sony's really good about this. Well, they will, they will launch their console where they can just, you know, just make it manufacturable and they usually lose money on it uh, in the first iteration. And then they constantly refine it. 
how, how can we get this to be fewer chips with so process shrinks and everything? Let's combine these things that used to be two chips into one chip. And let's combine those four chips into one chip and just keep going until you can get your entire previous generation console on a single chip. Uh, right. And Nintendo has it has done a little bit of that in recent years. And it's certainly done that with the remakes of the NES and, and the, the iterations of the GameCube. But with their consoles, they've always been historically uh, of the opinion that they should make profit from day one, that they should not make a console that cost them $500 to build that they sell for 200 bucks, and just rely on the fact that Moore's Law will make that thing cheaper to manufacture so that down the line uh, they can be making money and they'll make it up in games. Nintendo has always been kind of especially, and this, this smells to me like uh, uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi's, Yamauchi, sorry, uh, his sort of MO where like, why should we lose money? We have such a fabulous product. We're awesome. We sh- they should pay us and we should make money on every console we build from day one. And if if it's too expensive, well, find a way to make it less expensive because I'm not going to take a loss on the console. Why would I take a loss? This is an awesome thing that we're building. They should pay us and we should make money. Like a very, as uh, Vince Tego says, a very Apple-like thinking. Like, you know, we should make money, shouldn't we? Let's make money. So Nintendo supposedly, again, we don't know for a fact because Nintendo keeps its stuff pretty close to the vest, but supposedly has always made money on its consoles from day one, which is flies in the face of what everyone else in the industry has done. Uh, and you can look at that's another reason I think they're impressive. Now, if you look at the GameCube motherboard, this was the GameCube motherboard on day one of the GameCube. Uh, obviously, the, the thing looks vaguely cube shaped, so the motherboard is basically a square. And in the center of the square is one almost centered exactly in the square is one big giant chip, uh, which is the GPU by ATI and a bunch of other stuff tacked in there. And then above it, centered again, uh, slightly smaller square is the IBM PowerPC CPU. And then below the big square thing in the middle are what I believe are the two uh, memory chips. And then there's a bunch of diodes and resistors and other surface mount uh, things and through holes for all the I.O. connectors. But that's basically the whole motherboard. Did you pull up this picture yet? Yes. Is that not a a thing of beauty? CPU, GPU, two chips of memory, square motherboard. And that's basically it. I mean, obviously the stuff on the underside and there's all the connectors and all the analog components and the power supply and all that stuff. But this thing is a thing of beauty. And to imagine, like, this is not revision 17 of this, where they, they came out with this on day one. This is an amazing triumph of engineering. I'm probably I'm just repeating everything that's in, my, in the article here. Anyway, I encourage everyone to read it. I like this says, uh, bow down before it in the... Yes. <laughs> and, and it, is, it is a nice looking motherboard, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of... It reminds me of the Steve Jobs story. It was like, I don't like how the traces on this motherboard look. Let's redesign them. And the engineers were like, that's crazy. And they basically ignored him. It's amazing when it all comes together, <laughs> when you can say, we're going to make a machine that is more powerful than the, than the dominant leader. It's more powerful than the PlayStation 2, which people can argue about with the size of the disc and all that stuff. But I think it, it was. Uh, easy to program for relative to our competition. Make a profit from day one. Sell it more cheaply. And have such a beautiful board that, like, combining it, you'd have to combine the CPU and GPU, which for all I know they eventually did. But, uh, like, it's pretty it's pretty minimal. You know, I, think, I think later in the article I link to the Xbox motherboard to, to uh, contrast it to the, the GameCube motherboard. It's a, it's a wide difference. God, I cannot go on these tangents. We're never going to get through this. Yeah, so read the article about the, about the GameCube motherboard. Uh Third, another third-party controller. Uh, now we're getting to the modern era. Many people sent me links to Mad Cats's Major League Gaming Pro Circuit controller for the Xbox 360. Mad Cats, by the way, is conveniently uh, ends in an S C A T Z, nicely sidestepping the S apostrophe S mm-hmm. issues that right. we've had. Right. So look, it's Z. You just do apostrophe S. Yeah, no fuss. 
Um, this incidentally is the same. Con- oh no, this is not the same thing. All right, I'll get to that in the next thing. All right. So if you look at this, what it looks like is an Xbox 360 controller with the analog stick up on the left, uh, and then a secondary analog stick down below the buttons, which are in a nice cross shape, and then this little D-pad. Uh, the tricky bit about it is that all those controls, the two analog sticks and the D-pad, are removable. They're like they're in sockets, so you can take the faceplate off and take the D- two D-pads, uh, the two analog sticks and the D-pad out of their sockets and rearrange them any way you want. So if you want both your analog sticks down in kind of the PlayStation location, because that's comfortable to you, you can put them there. If you want them styled like an Xbox, you can. In theory, I guess you could probably put the two analog sticks next to each other on the left side, although I'm not sure how you would use them. Uh, This is a serious piece of hardware, obviously. Anytime you have configurable controllers, it reminds me of the the Razer mice that are are configurable with different weights inside them and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, They even have... Different analog sticks. If you prefer a convex analog stick to a concave one, you can just take them, you know, swap them out for each other. There are weight clips that you clip onto it to give it the right balance and weight that you want. This is some serious stuff. And I this is what third party controllers should be. There shouldn't be cheap pieces of crap that try to imitate imitate the first party controllers and fail and feel cheap. They should be like uh, you know, high end type of things or more advanced controllers. Some something that's better than the than the first party controller. So many third party controllers historically have not been better than the first party controllers. And the only point would be like, well, you can save ten bucks, you know. Uh, so I applaud Mad Cats for this this product. And the other one I want to talk about is the End Control Avenger. Uh, this is the one that had the big blow up with Penny Arcade recently. It wasn't yeah. the company that makes the controller, it was the person that guy. they had doing their PR in a bad in a bad way yeah and so you can link to the penny arcade story on this it's kind of a sideshow but he was a bad pr person but the controller itself uh is very interesting um how to describe it it's not really a controller so much as a thing that attaches to your controller kind of like the alien attaches to faces <laughs> the, the face huggers <laughs> right this thing this is a controller hugger. <laughs> this is interesting uh and I saw many pictures of this, and I, and I was like, how, how the hell is this thing even going to work? Are you looking at a picture of it now? Yes. It, it looks like, I was like, what are those tubes? Do they have liquid in them? Is it, I don't, how does it, what is the advantage of this, or why would you ever want to do this? It looks like a control that it's strapping onto your thing, and it's, it's got these little devices that are poised over the buttons on your Xbox controller. Do you have this in, in the show notes already? Or? Oh, I got all this. Yeah, all right. don't, you don't have to add. Uh, yeah, it's a very weird... I, it's a very weird looking thing. It almost looks like you'd use your knees to bump the bump yeah, the thing. It, like if you've ever seen uh, something in a car where perhaps somebody who doesn't have full use of their limbs or something, they have an attachment that allows them to drive without maybe foot controls or something like like that. It almost looks like something like that. Like if you had an, an extra appendage, leave that to your imagination. But uh, <laughs> an extra appendage that you wanted to use to control some of the games there's little levers and other things coming out of it extra buttons extra things it 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 really looks like something from buckaroo bonsai and, and some of the stories that i clicked to through reading the penny arcade you know pr fiasco with that uh, pr guy yeah were people saying that this controller was of interest to uh, disabled gamers who have you know hey, limited you use of some some more of their limbs and, sure. and so i was i was trying to get a handle all right so is this something that lets people who have uh, have limited use of their hands or some other physical problem it helps them to be able to play games or is this something like like the mad cats controller where it's like for super duper pros it seems like it's both and i i had it explained to me by googling around and finding videos of people demonstrating this so i put one of the youtube video in the show notes link uh 
and you can see the person, you know, uh, demonstrating how to play with it and, and why you might want to do it. And the, the upshot for me, I think, is that it allows, uh, obviously, it, it, if you can't do the movements that are required to hold a regular Xbox controller, this thing uses different movements. And if the, you find those movements easier, uh, you know, for your range of physical abilities, that's, that's good. So it's good for disabled people in that way. But for pro people, the, the sale seems to be have both of your thumbs on the analog sticks when you're playing a first-person shooter because, you know, one is your movement and one is where you look. Right. And don't have to move them. And most first-person shooters try to do that. They try to say, okay, put your left thumb here, put your right thumb there, move, look, uh, uh, you know, without having to move those, and then use your trigger fingers to fire your gun and to hit shoulder buttons and stuff like that. Uh, the, the trouble is those darn face buttons. Because you've already got both your thumbs occupied, and underneath you've got your fingers using the triggers and shoulders. But the games inevitably use those face buttons to, to switch weapons, to, to duck, to go into different stances, to do, you know, to lean, to right. do all the things that you might do. And so what do you hit those with? Your tongue? <laughs> right? So this, this setup allows <laughs> you to keep both your thumbs on the, the, the analog sticks Use your fingers below for the triggers, but also use your fingers below, you know, so using your fingers to pull on the triggers and shoulder buttons, but to push your fingers outwards to hit a series of levers, which will transfer, transform that motion into downward motion on the buttons. There's actually even elastic strings on the bottom that you twitch those elastic strings and that pulls the triggers for you. So you get more of a hair trigger effect. And the little things that are poised over the buttons on the face of the controller have adjustable little dials on them to get them, you know, you spin them down so it's just almost to the contact point of the X button. So you just barely need to flick that thing to hit the X button to, you know, switch weapons or change stances or something. Uh, this is a really interesting third-party product to me. So I can see why everyone was excited about it. Uh, and the Penny Arcade thing was kind of a sideshow where it's like, no, the product itself that we're not controlling about, it's this one PR guy who was a jerk. Um... Although apparently there have been delays in getting this product to people, I think the popularity of it has perhaps exceeded their expectations, yeah. or uh, or maybe there's just some sort of manufacturing problem. But some people have had it in their hands, so I, I suggest everyone who's interested in this look at that video if you haven't seen it already. I put it in the show notes of someone demonstrating how this thing works, and it is really interesting and innovative and amazing. Uh, of course, what it says to me is it reinforces my my personal uh, notion that. First-person shooters are much better played with a mouse and keyboard. That the, the controller is not the right tool for that job. Mm. And attaching this face hugger to the controller perhaps makes it better suited and gives you an edge when playing these type of games. Uh, but I would still much rather play a first-person shooter with a mouse and a keyboard. And it can be argued that the keyboard is a crappy tool for this too. But at the very least, you know, the mouse gives you freedom movement to look around, and the keyboard you have five fingers and many different keys, and you can arrange things in many different ways and customize them and get custom keypads. So, uh, I think with a stock mouse and keyboard is a better tool for a first person shooter than a stock controller. But maybe this thing, maybe this thing gives a it narrows that gap slightly. Mm-hmm. All right, is this going to be the last one? I don't know. We'll see. So, on. The PlayStation controller, which I complained about in the last show, there were, as expected, some defenders of the PlayStation controller. Uh, some of them were, gave me replies on Twitter and emails. I couldn't tell if they were trying to make a joke by exactly saying the things that I said that PlayStation fans would say sometimes word for word, <laughs> or if they were just serious. And <laughs> I think I, they were serious. So I think some of them were serious. Uh, but, you know, the, the reason I... I said, I know you're going to say X, Y, and Z. I thought that's what they were going to say, and they did. So, I don't know. It's self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, 
But one of them, Dave Sheeney from our chat room, D. Sheeney in the chat room, gave a very long, very nice, very well-composed uh, reply. Did you see his email? And I did get so much feedback from all the different shows. I, I, you- no, I do, and I have it, uh, I have it here. There's, I have about 100, 200 emails in the hypercritical folder. Yeah, and his, his had inline pictures. Is that correct? Yeah, let me pull this one up. I'm trying to. There it is. This one was sent on the... Uh, no, I'm looking at an, an older one from him. Hold on, let me pull up the newer one. I've actually... When, what is this one dated? Oh, I gotta look it up. I had it open in my window, There's but then I... There's a bunch from this guy. Yeah, this one is dated two days ago, the 11th. I don't, know, I don't have this one. that one on this machine. All right, well... Can you read he, it? He, he wrote it. He formatted. He included photos to demonstrate his points interspersed with the writing, big high resolution photos. Uh, and I think uh, it's he, he deserves airtime for this. Oh, he sent it straight to me. He's saying he didn't send it through five. Oh, that's why you didn't get it. Okay, so I think this, I have one. Called. I actually have one from him talking about Steve Jobs name, the apostrophe S that, but I, I do not have the, this one. <laughs> yes. He's a, a long time listener. I'll send this one. to so, you. So he says, Yes. It's always uh, that they always say that when they want to be read on the air. Well, I'm not going to read it so much as I'm going to address his points because it was a very long email. Because I think I think this this level of effort in feedback deserves airtime. <laughs> so he's going to get his airtime now. Uh, um, and uh, all right. So his first comment is uh, complaining about how I said that the position of the analog controls was not the natural place that my thumbs would fall when holding the controller. Mm. And uh, there's two aspects of this. One was uh, talking about the assumption that where the D-pad is on the PlayStation controller is the primary control position. I always keep using that term. It's like, you know, that's, that's the optimal place to, to put the controls, right? And he says that that's not necessarily a safe assumption. Why do you think where the D-pad is on the PlayStation controller is, is, the, is the best location? Just because that's where they put things. And as you pointed out in our own show, a lot of the decisions they made for the PlayStation controller and the SNES controller were not based on ergonomics. So why is it that you think that that, is the primary, that primary control location is the best place for the controller? Maybe the other place is better. Um, and he demonstrates that by providing pictures of his own hands holding a PlayStation controller. I can't tell if it's a dual, dual shock 2 or 3. Uh, but they all look the same, which was kind of my point. Uh, holding the, the PlayStation controller to show that it really is a natural position. So he shows himself uh, grabbing the controller, putting his fingers underneath it, you know, and then laying his hands on top of it and says, look, see, it's, it's perfectly natural that my thumbs fall exactly on the thumbsticks. Uh, my comment on this is that, first of all, everyone's hands are different. Uh, so, and different sizes and things are comfortable to different people. All controller design is a compromise of some kind where you're trying to make a control that fits as many people's hands as possible. Uh, I, however, do not buy the notion that these that uh, the position that the D-pad is in is not the primary control location. And I think his own picture demonstrates that. If you look at his final picture in the series, did you get this email yet, by the way? I just have a brand new email from you forwarded from him. Yeah, can you open does the picture show for you? There is a picture. And in, in his hands, and perhaps it's the way that this angle is, uh, he looks. He looks a little bit like Andre the Giant with the <laughs> well, way the that his hands are small. sized. It's the controller looks. He's sort of again. People are, are not able to see, and maybe never see this. So here's what you have to imagine: imagine Andre the Giant <laughs> holding a matchbox. You know, if if 
for the for the, for those of you who've never held a matchbox, these are things that very old people used to use. Uh, it, it he's sort of balancing the matchbox on the the middle fingers of his of his hand. It's that tiny. I don't even know how somebody this large would use regular household objects. Like you could imagine, you know, the largest size mug that the normal person would say is far too big to use. For him, that's a teacup. He's clearly enormous. All right, so look at the very last picture. There's three pictures in there. See the last picture where his hands are kind of in the final position? How could he use? That's ridiculous. I've held this controller. And this is not that small. This is a mock-up or something. This isn't real. Nobody's <laughs> it's an this- obstacle illusion because his hands are closer to the camera. Uh, no, he's got huge. It's freakish. The point I want to make about this, this final position, showing, showing how the hands are in a natural position there, is that in this final shot, there's no way he can use the shoulder buttons with his index fingers. And that's kind of that's, that, true. that's what I'm what I'm getting at is that if you grip the thing in a natural way, actually gripping the little horns. Right. How do you get your fingers around gripping in a, in a handshake type grip? Your thumbs fall on where the D pad is. Yeah. And the reason they have to fall there is because, well, then if they don't, how the hell are you going to reach uh, L1 and L2 and right. R1 and R2? Right. Right. And uh, technically, he could probably reach it with his fingertips yeah, if he like flex them. Giant one double, fingers. One of those ju- double jointed people who can tr- uh, can bend just the very top. Uh, part of your finger can you do that you strike me as a double jointed person mm, no you can't do that where you bend the, the first knuckle backwards no you, you put your finger straight up yeah. and so if you look at your fingers there's little there's, there's hinges in them so the, the very first place where your finger can bend yeah starting from your fingernail right just bend your finger there don't bend it anywhere else no i can't do that no double jointed people can do that can you do uh, that no i cannot i thought maybe the guitar thing where you have a lot of guitar players have uh very dexterous fingers i can i know i can do i can do that kind of thing with my fingers but i can't i can't just bend just that yeah by itself all right so anyway that's my point that if you grip the thing uh, in that manner where you think your hands are are comfortable on the thing you can't reach the shoulder buttons Uh, and dishing in the chat room says i'm gripping it too hard it's not about hard gripping it's about being able to operate the shoulder buttons lots of games use the shoulder buttons at the same time as use analog stick and if but if you sort of what, what I consider a natural grip is like a handshake grip. And lots of ergonomic things are made to like be, you know, a handshake. You know how your hands work naturally, just like grab, you know, grabbing a tree branch. or. Okay, how did what, this guy take the picture if he's holding? Oh, he, uh, head mount camera, right? You don't have one of those? No. It's like a little headband. You, you just God, put the camera on. His hands are so large. He could, do, he could enter a contest or something. They're Tell huge. Me. It's an optical illusion. All right. So, so I do think that the location of the D-pad is the primary control location. Um, and I think if you see most people hold the PlayStation controller, especially if they have to use the shoulders, they want their fingers to curl around the shoulder buttons, and then they have to deflect their thumbs from the natural position. If you talk to any hand doctor about you know how you injure your tendons and everything, is that it, there's, there's a straight way that your tendons go through your anatomy, and as you deflect your, your limbs or your digits or any other thing, now you're making that tendon, which slides back and forth, slide through a bend and that's the more you deflect your joints and then make this tendon slide back and forth the more irritated those things get uh so uh, i, I nix that point uh the octagon shaped hole uh his point about the octagon surround i mean there's there's room to quibble on this one because it it is a different experience having the octagon thing there i i talked about how it provides tactile feedback that isn't provided uh, on 3D analog sticks that used to be provided on the D-pad. So in the D-pad, you could always tell where up, down, left, and right, where regardless of where your hands were, uh, regardless of where you were holding the controller. And now 
you can't as much because you might lose track of where things are because the analog stick is just waving down there in the wind, but the octagonal surround will let you feel where that is. And his point is that the visual feedback on the screen is what really matters. Uh, and the directional indicators aren't, aren't accurate or fast enough to, uh, uh, to provide the feedback that the visual input can. My, my point on that is that the visual feedback on the screen is all well and good, but you still have to know what input do I provide to, to change the things on the screen. So lots of, uh, like for example, 3D platform games, the, the control scheme is push the stick in the direction you want the guy to go on the screen. So if you're depending on where the camera is, the direction you push on the stick makes the guy run a, a different way. Uh, so what you want to know is, all right, when I look at the screen, straight ahead on the screen, like above me on the screen, if you're looking you know, uh, at a camera view from above your eye, is where I want to go. So I want to push straight ahead on my stick. And the octagonal surround lets you know where straight ahead is on your stick. It's not so much that you're, you're not relying on the visual feedback of the screen. You are, but you, you then want to know, okay, given what I've seen on the screen, which direction do I push my stick to make him go, you know, like you need to basically mentally align the axis of the stick. Like you have to align north on, north on your controller with north on your TV screen. And you can do that without looking at your controller and without having your controller constantly directly in front of you. Like if you've got it, you know, way up in the air, like I said, with your tongue sticking out of the corner of your mouth or, you know, under, you know, way down lower, who knows? People do all sorts of contortions with their controllers when they're playing. Uh, I used to always make fun of my wife playing uh, Mario Kart in the GameCube because she would try to steer with the controller. If she was going too far in one direction, she would lean and turn the controller like the steering wheel and turn. turn. I would say, it doesn't, it doesn't know that you're turning it. You have to move the stick if you want to, you know. And of course, that would come back to bite me later with the Wii when <laughs> turning the controller actually is how you control the game. But uh, for, for GameCube controllers and other things, you don't actually have to turn the controller to make it turn. Uh, but people do that naturally. And so what I'm saying is that when you're doing that, just you know, naturally because you're getting into the game, you still need to know where exactly straight up is on the controller. And to some degree, the, the shape, the unchanging shape of the controller itself uh, gives you uh, that type of uh, feedback because you can feel where the edges are, whatever. The octagonal surround is, is an additional uh, uh, aid to that. And the other thing is that, all right, so the disadvantage that people say for the octagonal surround is that it's notchy. Like, you can feel straight ahead, you can feel the 45s, and you know, and you can feel the 90s, but... It, in between there, you don't have the same fine control as, as you, you want. And I'll get to that in, in the next point. But before I get to that, I want to talk about the, uh, the gold standard game, the, the, the testing game for how good is your analog stick. And that game is Super Monkey Ball on the GameCube. The only control in that game is the analog stick. Have you ever played this game? Mm, I'm sure I have. I don't remember. I'm not sure you have because it was kind of obscure. It was a GameCube game. You can get it and play it on your Wii if your Wii has GameCube compatibility, and I think they made Wii versions. I think I actually have the Wii version. But the first Super Monkey Ball, not Super Monkey Ball 2 and not the Wii version. Yeah, first, I've played it, this thing. It was, it, you're a monkey in a ball, surprise. Uh, and the only control is the analog stick. Buttons do nothing, shoulder buttons do nothing, C-stick does nothing, D-pad does nothing, just, you know, other than pausing the game with the select button, stuff like that. The stick is the control, right? Super Monkey Ball 1, the very first game. Uh, and what you, ostensibly what you're doing with that stick is tilting the board that you're on, but that's like, you know, well, are you tilting the board? Are you making the ball go forward and moving the camera at the same time? It's, it's like a, you know, a relativity type problem. Uh, but uh, Super Monkey Ball and, and in other games like that, one of the camera controls that you might have is bring the camera directly behind me. And in Super Monkey Ball in particular, that's important because the, the levels get harder and harder until you're trying to navigate this ball on very skinny, you know, paths floating in space, right? So, 
if you want to successfully navigate a very skinny path, what you want to do is get the camera swinging directly behind you so that the path is exactly straight ahead into the screen, you know, 3D speaking, and then push the control stick exactly ahead. And how do you know if you're pushing the control stick exactly ahead without the octagonal surround? You might be close, but not quite close. And like in most games, that doesn't matter. But in games, especially platformers and very particularly Super Monkey Ball, it makes a big, big difference whether you're going exactly straight ahead. Now, I think the analog stick in the game controller is awesome for lots of reasons. But the octagonal surround puts it over the top for games like uh, Super Monkey Ball because I can't imagine playing that game on a PlayStation controller. I think it might have actually come out for the PlayStation or any other kind of controller without a surround because that game is so precise. That game is entirely about the precise control of this one little ball on this maze of levels where you're just trying to keep this ball from falling off the edge of these increasingly skinny uh, paths. And in the earlier levels, many of those paths are in straight lines or they're straight lines up hills. Or, uh, anyone who's played Super Monkey Ball ho- can hopefully appreciate the, the uh, precision required by this game and the, um, the purity of the game the, and the amount of hand sweat produced by the game. Uh, the, uh, and, and aside here, uh, so uh, Super Monkey Ball has a scoring system where you get play points. It's one of those Sega terms that doesn't really make any sense, or maybe it's poorly translated. But you get you get points for playing and achieving certain things. And supposedly the maximum number of play points you can get in Super Monkey Ball is nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine. If you get every banana into every level and never die. And the the greatest video game thumb dexterity triumph I've ever seen on video <laughs> are the I think there's many of these, or maybe it's just one guy is a YouTube playthrough of someone playing Super Monkey Ball and getting 9,999 play points. That means he plays through every single level and never dies and gets every single thing, right? It's kind of like the Pac-Man perfect game where you're like, oh, I got every fruit, I got every dot, I never died by the ghosts, I made it up to the kill screen. You know, there's no kill screen at the end of Super Monkey Ball. You just finish the game. This probably, it's kind of like a golf where you're not really interested in golf if you haven't ever played it. That's been my experience. Most people who have never played golf, uh, find it boring to watch and aren't interested in it. Tennis is a similar way. Well, if you've never played Super Monkey Ball, watching this video will be boring and not make any sense to you. But if you have ever played Serious Monkey Ball, uh, Serious Monkey Ball, Super Monkey Ball <laughs> in anger, where you're not just like, oh, let me dork around with this game for two seconds. Like, you're an actual gamer, and you said, I'm going to play this game, and I'm going to excel and achieve in this game, right? If you've ever done that, you know how hard this game is. And to watch what I assume is an actual human being playing and not like a, a a bot or an emulator or something an actual human being playing super monkey ball and achieving nine i'm going to be very sad if someone writes in and tells me you know that was a bot and it was an emulator and <laughs> and you've been fooled but this video existed when the gamecube was new so it seems if someone actually built a device to automate automatically play a gamecube by you know actuating the controller and looking at the tv screen i guess i'll still give them kudos so i'll be very sad as an emulation but it is, it is an amazing achievement it's something you didn't think was possible that's, that's the big thing about video game uh, movies on the web. Whenever you're stuck in a video game, or whenever I'm stuck in a video game, I like to look at someone, you know, like, I know what to do, I just can't do it. Like in a Mario level, where I know I have to jump from here to here to there and hit that and blah, blah, and it's frustrating me and I can't get past it. I like to watch a video of somebody else doing it. Not because it's going to tell me something new. It's like, yeah, I know, you got to jump on that, and then before the thing comes, you got to do it over there, and then don't let that thing kill you, and don't touch that, and then move over there. I just like seeing someone else do it to convince myself that it can be done. And you watch it over and over again. It's kind of like positive visualization for athletes. Like you see it being done and you're like, it can be done. Look, look, it's just a simple series of movements. Look at this person doing it. But if you look at the super monkey ball video, 
it has an opposite effect. You're like, that's not possible. No human can do that. That it's yeah, I don't know, it's like half an hour long, forty minutes long, split up in two parts. It is unbelievable. They they should show it. It's they should show it on movie screens for people who played Super Monkey Ball and say, "Come see the pinnacle of human achievement." He's like the the Kwisad Sadarak of. Uh, oh wait a minute, Dune, uh, Dune <laughs> reference. Uh, yeah, I didn't know you've seen Dune. Oh, I, I read the book too. Uh, it is unbelievable. I I highly endorse this this movie if anyone has ever seen it. Uh, if anyone's ever played Super Monkey Ball. People who haven't, I'm sorry for wasting your time. All right, so... Well, hold on, let's we, do it. Let's do our second sponsor. All right. Now, can we do it? Yes, you can. All right? Yeah. Rackspace. These guys, you got to think of them, think of them three, uh, three boxes. Draw three boxes in your mind. In the first one, put managed hosting. This is, this is the best first-class managed hosting in the business. This is servers that are racked on demand, configured the way you want them, with human beings waiting to help you. Restart them, reinstall operating systems, configure them the way you want, whatever you want. Second box, cloud hosting. You all know what that is. These guys are the masters of cloud hosting. The third box, hybrid hosting. Combination. They're the only, the only company out there that I'm aware of that, that offers both and that interconnects them, and that understands both. So what that might mean is, for some reason, maybe you've got some super intensive application that ne- you really don't, uh, don't need the scaling stuff for it. But later you do, or a different aspect of your business does. They can tie all this together. The only one's doing that as far as I know. And they're there for you when your business grows too. That's the thing. You can't outscale Rackspace when it comes to growing your business. So go to rackspace.com slash 5 by 5 They have special deals there for you guys on cloud servers, CDN, scaling services, all that stuff. And I just, while we were doing the show, I don't make it a habit to check my email, but you told me to go and look for this DCE email with the hands. So right in there, came in uh, 20 minutes ago, my buddy Michael over at, uh, at Rackspace. Here's what he says. Hey, Dan, we're hiring a senior UX person at Rackspace. This could be in San Antonio, could be in Austin, could be in San Francisco. He says, this is an awesome job, literally turning Rackspace.com into world-class websites. He says, would you mind sharing this with your peeps? He actually said peeps. He says, I figure five by five listeners might be really interested. So what I'm going to do, there's, there is a link here, and I'm going to, uh, to drop this into the, into the show notes. This looks like a really cool, awesome job. So uh, go check it out. Thanks to Rackspace.com slash 5 by 5 for making this show possible. I just realized when you said the name of the person who sent the email that I had been reading the last letter as an N, not an H, and saying Sheeny. It's not Sheeny. It's according to the, the man himself. It's She-E. She-E. S-H-E hyphen and then three E's in a row is his uh, explanation of how to pronounce. So I apologize for mangling your name and calling you Sheeny. Although Sheeny would be easier to pronounce. So consider changing Like name. Martin Sheeny. Yeah, Martin Sheeny. It's like very, it's something that's very Martin Sheeny when it's, you know. <laughs> it's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. So back to that octagonal surround I said I was going to get back to. Uh, one of the other complaints about it besides being notchy, uh, he says that the octagon hole won't help until the stick has reached full deflection. And by that time, it's probably too late and the target has probably been overshot. Uh, so the idea is that you're, you only touch that octagonal surround when, you're going, when, when you hit the, the limits of your your reach. So why would you, you know, if, if you're going to instantly go to full deflection, why not use a digital pad instead of an analog stick? Uh, this, I think, ties into 
uh, how you know the octagonal surround prevents fine-tuned movement. In my experience, when you need to do fine movement of you know slight changes, you're not at full deflection because uh, if if you're at full deflection, you're just slamming in one direction or the other. Uh, I find I can make fine adjustments. You just slide it along the flat, the flat, uh, you know, sides of the octagon. You can make small adjustments like that, but most of the time when I'm making small adjustments, I don't have it at full deflection. So I think the octagonal surround doesn't say why not just use a D-pad because you've still got the full range of motion in there. Uh, and uh, lots of games. Uh, and the, the the other aspect of this is that well, I don't know if lots of games. It's not some of the games that I played. Uh, Lots of games do use full deflection movement in analog games, but you still do require uh, fine control. So a good example are 3D Mario platformers, where you're routinely going at full deflection when you're just running in a particular direction or another. Uh, and a, a complication on this, or a subtlety of this, is that in some Mario platformers, n- not so much now, but in, in the past, like Mario Sunshine on the GameCube, one of the things you can do is you can lock the directional stick in, you know, straight ahead, right? And then basically steer Mario or, you know, control where he goes on the screen by using the C-stick, the camera stick. Because what, what you're doing is just saying, I'm just going straight ahead, but I'm going to use the C-stick, small deflections on the C-stick, not at, not at the extremes. You know, the, 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 the regular analog stick on your left thumb is fully deflected going straight forward. And then you are steering with small, subtle movements to the, the camera stick. Because as you turn the camera, because of the way a relative motion works, you know, as you turn the camera, straight ahead be- becomes a different direction in the 3D world. Uh, so that's, that's another example of where full deflection is needed in an analog game with fine-tuned control. And the, the other thing it po- points out is that if full direct- deflection is required, an octagonal surround prevents it in some directions. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case. If you can imagine the, the range of, of motion of, of an analog stick where zero is in the middle, and then at one of the extremes, there's, you know, you're, you're at one or something, just look at the octagon and draw a circle that fits within the octagon. That is maximum deflection in all directions. The fact that you can go past maximum deflection just continues to send the maximum value out through the you know to the to the system. So you're not you're not actually missing maximum deflection in some directions. Maximum deflection is achievable in all directions. <laughs> uh, it just you can go past it when you go into the vertices. Uh, this is another instance where I'm waving my hands around. I hope you can <laughs> visualize an octagon with a circle inside of it. And understand what I'm saying. Uh, sharp edges. He says, I mentioned something about sharp edges on a dual shock, and he has no idea what I'm talking about. There are no sharp edges on his controller. <laughs> so I've got my dual shock 3 here in front of me. Uh, the, the sharp edges that I were talking about uh, were the holes that R1 and L1 come out of. Uh, so R1 and L1 are the shoulder buttons. Uh, there are holes in the case, and the shoulder buttons poke out of them. And when you press the shoulder buttons, uh, the shoulder buttons press in to basically be flush with those holes. The holes themselves are kind of beveled. Uh, where it's not just like a hole cut in, in a thin piece of, of a thin plastic wall. There's actually a bevel there, but the edge of the bevel, kind of like the edge of a MacBook Pro, is sharp. Now, it's on an angle, so it's like, you know, the, the surface of the controller, and then there's a bevel on an angle, but the, where those two things meet, where the direction of, of the surface changes from being, uh, you know, parallel to the surface of the button to tucking in on that bevel, that thing is sharp enough that I can imagine you could, you know, cut something with it if you were to remove the button from the hole. And where where I interact with that is in games that require a lot of holding down of R1. So, for example, Shadow of the Colossus, where R1 is the the gripping button, is basically the main mechanic of that game. And for the most of the entire game, you will be trying to hold down R1 in various sequences. And it's a tense game, and you will find yourself holding down R1, you know, 
using more force than is necessary. Although I, mean, I think it might actually be force sensitive, so maybe they're encouraging this. Does anyone in the chat room know if R1 and L1 are, are pressure sensitive on the on the DualShock Three? Anyway. The point is, I'm holding it down for a long time, and even and I'm holding down hard. And even if I wasn't holding down hard, that edge is there, and it irritates your hand because it's something that your the fleshy part of your finger is pressing against for for you know hours, uh, on and off, but mostly on uh, during a very tense game. And I've got that little sharp surround on the R1 digging into my fingers. And you say, "Oh, you're holding it too hard," or "You're the fleshy part of your finger is too fleshy, and it's it's leaking into that edge, or it doesn't really hurt that much." It's just, it's just an irritant. What I'm saying is that the trigger should be designed with the idea that a finger is going to be pressing down on it, possibly for a long period of time, possibly harder than you think it's supposed to be. And if they made them pressure sensitive, then there's no excuse, because obviously uh, <laughs> they expected people to hold down hard on them. A lot of people who wrote in with feedback complained about the, the PlayStation triggers on the DualShock 2 and 3, that unlike a trigger on a gun or on many other consoles that sort of hooks your finger, that these things slope away from you. So if you're holding them down for a long time, slowly they slip out of your finger. It's like if a trigger on a gun was, you know, trigger on a gun looks like a crescent moon kind of poking down from the gun. Imagine if the crescent went the other way and that was your gun trigger. No one makes gun triggers like that, but the PlayStation shoulder buttons are shaped like that, especially, uh, you know, R1 and uh, R2 and R3. R1 and R2 are more kind of flat, but they are, they are convex instead of concave. Uh, and finally, he talks about Xbox asymmetry, which is a common complaint about the Xbox from PlayStation fans is that well, the analog sticks might be in weird places on the PlayStation controller, but the Xbox is worse because they put one in the primary control location and one in the secondary location because the buttons are in the primary location on the other side. And that means that one of the analog sticks is always in suboptimal position, and a lot of people find it difficult when you're playing a game that requires the use of two analog sticks at the same time to coordinate that movement when you can kind of feel that it's not symmetrical in your hand, like they're in, they're in different positions. I, I agree with that. I find... I find using dual analog sh- sticks awkward in all situations, and the asymmetry of the Xbox can take some getting used to, but I think it's still a better design than having both the sticks in the bad location just for the sake of symmetry, uh, because a lot of games don't use both sticks. Um, in fact, I would say most games don't use both sticks. I mean, if you play all first-person shooters, then maybe that's not the case, but uh, I play a lot of platformers and third-person games, and they tend not to use both sticks at the same time uh, for the entire course of the game. At the end, he has a section called, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, you know, I I expected that to be the attitude. Uh, I applaud him for the thoroughness of his points. He didn't really convince me of anything, but he has clearly thought about it and and, and clearly expressed his preferences. Oh my God, this just goes on and on, doesn't it? Uh, I'll try to get through these quickly. Uh, Xbox controller conspiracy theories from a couple of people. Toby Coolstock uh, writes in with the, my favorite one, saying that the uh, the Xbox controller, which we talked about the original Xbox controller, that was big, and I said how it was big because it's like they they recognized that the average aim of gamers was going up, and let's make something for the size for adult hands. His theory is that it was a, a marketing. I'm reading from his email: a marketing sleight of hand in the same vein as those KFC adverts that put the tiny cheesecake really close to the camera to make it seem a respectable size. First of all, I am amazed and scared and confused that KFC apparently sells cheesecake. Is this accurate? <laughs> I never heard. I, seriously, does KFC sell cheesecake now? What, I don't, I'm out of touch, apparently. They, sell, they probably do. I wouldn't, would take, I wouldn't surprise me even a little bit if they did. It would take a lot for me to buy a cheesecake at KFC. Let me just say that. Uh, but yeah, so the idea is that they made the controller really big because the Xbox console itself was gigantic. And this is the, the meme for the kids who may not have known this, is the Xbox is huge, LOL all caps with some letters transposed. The Xbox's huge LOL meme was huge, so to speak, 
from back in the days when the original Xbox was launched because they were the newcomer into the field and Sony was the established base and there's all of the fanboys yelling at each other about whose console is best. And uh, So Xbox is huge, which is a big point there, which really doesn't make, it never made any sense to me except for from ridiculing their hardware design perspective. Because how, do you care how big the console is? You're not, you're not holding it. It's not like you have to carry it on your back. It sits there in the entertainment center, right? Who cares how big the, you know, unless it's noisy or, or very hot or, I don't know. That was kind of a, a nonsensical point. But the, the idea was that Microsoft knew that people would be very upset that their console is big for some illogical reason, which they were. That would be an accurate prediction. And so made the controllers really big so that when shown in a product shot, the controllers scaled next to the, the box it would make both of them look normal size. I think this is a crazy conspiracy theory because as he points out himself, why wouldn't they just move the controller farther away from the camera? To make it look smaller, move the console closer, or do it. There's so many other things you can. You would not design the size of your console, uh, you know, for for marketing purposes to trick people into thinking it was a different size than it was. I think they really did uh, believe that the controller should be large for large hands. Someone else wrote me, and I forgot. I don't have this on my notes. I'm sorry, but to tell me that one of the things Microsoft was testing the controller for is they want we wanted a player to be able to put down the controller and balance it on their leg to be able to grab their drink or some chips or something and eat them. So it had to be big enough and sturdy enough to like sort of sit, you know, a balance on the person's leg or sit on the couch uh, so they could do some other things. They recognize people who play games at the same time that they're eating munchies or whatever. I found this story slightly more plausible than the, the marketing gimmick story, but uh, both of them uh, sound kind of strange to me. Uh, and finally... I had a fairly comprehensive Sony defense from someone who may or may not be affiliated with Sony in some way. Let's just say that. I will not name this person. Uh, in, in the past episode, I, I dumped on the Sony's controller a lot and complained about their lack of innovation. And I also made lots of subtle digs about while well, they tacked on the analog sticks after the N64 analog stick came out. And they added the, the, the rumble feature because the new Nintendo was adding a rumble feature and uh, the PlayStation Move is that uh, PlayStation Six Access was there because they heard that Nintendo had some sort of motion control, so they threw some accelerometers into it. And the PlayStation Move was clearly just a reaction to the Wii. Uh, all these ports, uh, points I said, this is just speculation. I don't know any of this for sure. Sometimes the timing doesn't line up. People say, well, "How could that be?" Because this came out before that came out. Like timings for product launches versus product development are fuzzy enough that you don't know. Like, well, did they just hear from their you know, from inside sources that Nintendo was planning a motion control, so they put accelerometers in a six-axis, or did they have no idea that Nintendo was doing motion control and they planned the six-axis all along, and on and on with the rumble feature of who had it first or who had the idea first and stuff like that. The, the meta point before I dis- discuss these individual points is that it doesn't really matter who got what first and who did what. It matters what people shipped, and the, the bottom line is that Sony shipped the same controller essentially for years and years, and Nintendo continued to ship something that was different, and they kept trying to improve. That's my main complaint. It doesn't matter who got what idea from where or, you know, who was the first, technically the first to do this or whether this thing was done. And it seems like it's derivative of that simply because that launched first, but really it's not derivative of all. It was completely independently invented. I don't really care who invented it. Well, you know, I do care a little bit in terms of stupid bragging rights and stuff, but that doesn't change the physical reality of the controller. And that's really what I was complaining about. The product as it exists, ignoring how it got to be that way and who was first and who copied who or anything like that. Uh, but this person's defense was very comprehensive. He said that the analog controls on the PlayStation had nothing to do with the N64, that the 6-axis had nothing to do with knowing that, that the Wii was doing some motion control stuff, and the PlayStation Move, this is the best one, the PlayStation Move 
this really stretches my my credibility meters. <laughs> had nothing to do with the Wii because it was simply an extension of the the iToy, which Sony had been developing for years. <laughs> uh, since we don't know for sure, and none of us work in Sony, and none of us can prove any of these things, I, I invite anyone to, you know, look at the evidence and decide for themselves. I have one way that I think it probably is. This person probably has more inside knowledge than I do, and he thinks it was the other way. But then again, I believe this person also is heavily invested in their belief that Sony is awesome. So believe what you will. But what I, the, the point I want to make is that this is not this doesn't change the quality of the controller. I don't really care who had what first. Hey, look at that. I think I made it through the controller follow-up. Wow. Only 87 uh, minutes. Jesus, I tried to go. I, I skip stuff. Believe it or not, I skip stuff. That is hard to believe. Do you want to, do you want to, are we done or do you want to try and do this, uh, this, uh, quote? God, I had two this other, soundbite. I had two other topics. One of them was a CES, talk about CES a little bit, and the other one was Wikipedia. I guess we have no time for Wikipedia. If you, do you think we have time for me to talk about CES briefly? Um, well, I'm not, I'm not sure what you want to say, but I'm, I'm, we should give it a shot. If for All no right. other reason, then I got the, got this thing queued up. Yeah, let's, there you go. You want to hear it? Some cost. No, so we're not ready to play that yet. So, all right. I will save my discussion of Wikipedia for a future show. Congratulations to people who made it this far into the show. There is a non-gaming topic coming up now at the tail end of the show. Next time, I will try very hard not to make it a gaming-related show. And maybe we'll just talk about Wikipedia from the very top. Uh, CES. CES was uh, this week. I did not attend, in case you didn't know that. I saw many of my friends online and sites that I read did attend and complained bitterly about CES, and there was much discussion about not so much about what is at CES, but is CES important? Is it worth paying attention to? Uh, the show is too bloated. People who were there, who weren't there, all that stuff. Uh, and Gruber, as always, had a great link. Uh, he had a link to Alexis Madrigal's uh, article at The Atlantic called Why You Can Ignore CES. And he quoted a little excerpt from it. And he said, let's say, let's say you paid close attention to last year's CES and the tablets that were hyped at the show. How important they have they turned out to be one year later? So if you can remember last year's CES, it was all about, oh, Windows Slate and all these tablets, and they're going to compete with the iPad. And there was tons of products introduced. And this article goes through all of them and says, where are they now? And the answer to where are they now is basically nowhere or nowhere good. Uh, and that's, that's, in a nutshell, the, the main complaint about CES. Lots of things are shown there, but how much of that stuff even shifts? It's kind of like an auto show where they show all these concept cars. And it's kind of cool to look at all the concept cars and stuff, but then you're like, all right, well, when can I actually buy this? And when I can buy it, will it look anything like that? Will it actually be any good or will it just be, you know, uglified and, and uh, not interesting? And, you know, but CES does fill a role, I guess. Um, you will allow it. Yeah, and there, there were actually interesting things at CES. I don't want to go through them all because it will make the section longer. Maybe we'll talk about them later. So I, I followed the CES coverage, and I ignored most of it, but there were a few things here and there that I was interested in. So I think there is still a role for CES. If only for consumer... I mean, it is the consumer electronics show. I think CES is at its best when it concentrates on actual consumer electronics, but like all things in this world, it is slowly becoming more and more computerified. So Apple and Microsoft are big, whereas it used to be like Toshiba and Sharp and Sony, you know, people who made what we used to consider inert consumer electronics products versus general purpose computers. But now everything is basically a computer, so it, it makes sense it's some sort of convergence. But I think CES is at its best when it's not computer products because consumer electronic companies tend to make very lousy computer products. Uh, but the thing I want to get to in the clip is that 
for some reason, I find myself like, I guess people tweet about it and stuff. I watch these keynotes that I really shouldn't be watching or really have no interest in. So I watch the Microsoft keynote at CES. Figuring, well, they said it's going to be the last one. Let me, let me take a look at it. Uh, and I've seen, as you imagine, a lot of keynotes in my day. Most of them Steve Jobs keynotes. But I've watched, you know, the Palm pre-launches and uh, Amazon uh, presentations and all sorts of keynotes. And most people generally agree that the Apple keynotes are the best you know they're like oh they're, they're the most exciting uh, they're sort of the gold standard for how you should do presentations of new technology products and i tweeted during the the, the microsoft keynote that it reminded me that professionalism is not the reason that people loved apple steve jobs keynotes and professionalism with or without scare quotes like it depends on how you define that a lot of people who responded to the twitter quote had a different definition in mind than i did when i wrote it but 140 characters is not a lot to elaborate uh, what I had in mind was that when you think of professionalism is, especially if someone's pe- speaking on stage, someone who's like a professional orator who they're not going to, uh, they're going to do the job required of them to deliver your, your message in a competent manner. They're going to enunciate, they're, they're not going to stumble over their words, they're going to have a clear message with forceful statements and, you know, not lots of vague weasel words, lots of, not lots of stumblings, competent demos where everything works. Like, that's what I think of as professionalism. And a lot of people say, boy, those Apple keynotes, they're awesome. Like, they, they rehearse them for hours. They're so professional. Like, all the demos are spot on. Everything is timed down to the second. You know, the audio visuals are awesome. Uh, and I think that's not why people loved Steve Jobs keynotes or Apple keynotes in general. And to demonstrate this, I wanted to... Uh, uh, when I was looking at this thing, I said, boy, this, this section that I'm looking at right here, it was Craig Davison of, from Microsoft's Xbox team. I believe he's actually in the marketing department, which is fine. I mean, you put your marketing, or they put Phil Schiller up on the stage in Apple. He's the marketing guy, right? You put your marketing guy up on the stage because you want a professional presentation. And presumably the marketing guys are the professionals in your organization who are great at presenting the face of the company in a professional manner. Uh, and so you... You can play that clip now. This is Craig Davidson, a, a random excerpt from the Microsoft CES keynote. I don't want you to pay attention to what he's saying in particular or what particular products or whatever. Just, just listen to this guy talk for a minute. Our growing lineup of great TV and entertainment partners on Xbox, including AT&T, UVerse TV, TELUS, Telefonica, and many more. With lightning fast voice control with Connect, a world of entertainment content, and the ease of discovery using Bing, Xbox is your all-in-one entertainment device for the living room. All the experiences you just saw are available now. But what comes next? At this very moment, we're working with some of the world's best-known brands, creative artists, and production companies to create unprecedented new experiences for the TV. Soon, you'll move away from one-way experiences of just watching TV to two-way experiences where you'll engage with the TV. To show you what this looks like, please welcome my colleague, Jamie Bauer, and her friend, Ainsley. Anyway. Yeah, so they had, uh, eventually, uh, some other people come on stage and do a demo. Uh, I don't want to pick on this person talking because I think that was a, I mean, as a reason, he, he did a good job speaking, right? You could understand what he was saying. Sure, the message clear. he was delivering was fairly clear. Nice little reverb. Yeah. Now, the thing 
that I, all the people in the chat room are complaining about, uh, because they're primed to already agree with me, is that it sounds like an infomercial. Uh, and it the, does. the point that I would get is it sounds like he's reading a script, uh, because he is. Duh. Uh, it sounds like he's reading a press release. Someone worked on this language and decided this is the message we want to deliver, and we're going to have a professional who's great orator, or you know, or not, obviously not a great orator because everyone doesn't like how he talks, up there reading the lines that we wrote in our meeting. For, it's, he's reading marketing copy. Right. And, and part of the problem is the marketing copy itself filled with buzzwords and experiences and you know declarations that you will now experience the you know power of this fully operational, you know, the whole business. It, it it sounds off-putting to us. Now, the, but what I don't get is the thing that I think people loved about Jobs and Apple presentations, I, they were rehearsed like crazy. And I'm sure Jobs had in mind exactly what he was going to say. But it sounded like he was really enthusiastic about what he was presenting. Uh, he really cared about this. Do you, what, I'm sure Craig Davidson really does care about this stuff. And like the people who work on the Xbox team really are passionate about what they're doing. And they think it's awesome. But it's not coming across in their presentation. That's the problem. It's not the problem that they're like heartless and they don't care about their stuff and Jobs was so much more passionate and he loved his stuff. They all care about what they're doing. But Jobs was able to, and all the people were really able to convey that to the audience. That let me show, you know, you can tell watching the guy, he, you know, he's really excited about this new version of iPhone or whatever that he thinks is Sometimes he thinks it's awesome and it's clear that we don't think it's awesome. We think it's dumb, but it's clear that he thinks this thing is great. And by the same token, sometimes he'll show something that he doesn't think is that great. And you can kind of tell like, Oh, he's kind of bored with this party. Just wants to get through it. Like it's, you know, it's a more human presentation where it's not the professionalism that drew us to it. It's the humanity. It's, it's that he's, he's expressing his own emotion and conveying it to the audience. Uh, in an effective manner. And that also means, yes, it, sometimes he stumbles, he talks it, it, in a sort of a, you know, if you wrote it down, the transcript of it wouldn't be correct grammar. Uh, there's, there's no like sentences with periods and commas and all, you know, but if you if you were to transcribe what, what Craig Davison was saying, I would imagine it would, it would, it would flow perfectly. Perfect, put, yeah. put it right into a press release. It's like ready to go. Uh, there are many lessons to take from Apple and Steve Jobs presenting. Rehearse a lot. Make sure your demos work. Be clear with your message. Have you know simple slides. Don't don't you know, sell past the close. Uh, and one of them is probably you know be excited about the products yourself. And I bet Microsoft thinks that they're doing all of that. And Steve Ballmer's the same way. If you see him sitting there with what's his name from American Idol, like I bet I don't know. Maybe Steve Ballmer isn't actually excited about things. I think he might be excited about them. And obviously the paid actor who's up there at your presentation. He's not invested in the success of Xbox. He's a paid actor. So that's also a ding against you. But I bet the Xbox team is really excited about what they're doing. They have just failed to convey that in their keynote because they're so paranoid about being professional. Their marketing department is, is turning them into a bunch of robots. Uh, and I think that's sad. I think Microsoft needs to watch more Steve Jobs keynotes and take away all the, the points about competency, but also think about the, the humanity that's being expressed there and that that's what microsoft is missing and that's in general what ces is missing hey i got through that pretty quickly huh? that was i mean that was no problem for you yeah we'll save wikipedia for another day god you you will not believe the number of stuff i skipped on those controllers really i, th- I thank you all for the controller feedback i tried to air as many of the valid points that i thought i could without overstaying my welcome Why you got to do it, Dan? I'm sorry. I 
The whole show I went. Self-control. It's not part yeah, of I mean, a Zen, Zen Buddhism. I'm not Zen. 99 minutes. I don't know the right words for what you are, but whatever the thing is that you subscribe to, self-control is part of it, right? Yeah, 99 minutes. I said, if that's he, your, go, if he go, I had a little, made a little note. I said, if he goes 99 minutes, then I will applaud him. All right. And you did it. I'll give you that one. All right. So we're done. Show number 50, huh? 50. 50 of these things in the can. Yep. Been a good year. Big year. <laughs> the big question is, will we, will we be doing any more of these shows? That's what remains to be seen. Will we do another year? No one, no one will know. They'll just have to tune in next week and see what happens. Actually, next week, we should mention this now, because in a mere, like, four days from now, Monday, which is a holiday here for many people, not for me, in the United States, uh, we are going to be doing a special, a special show. Is that correct? That is correct. I'm, I'm very happy that you remember. Well, I have it here on my calendar. I know, that's good. We are doing a, uh, the first, it, I, I would hesitate, I would be very hesitant to call it a show because the implication that it's, it's a show implies that it's maybe weekly or ongoing or whatever. Here's all I'll say is that we have created a small venue for which to talk about things relating to movies that fall outside of the scope of the other shows. Now, on the talk show, we would do episodes of uh, where we would talk about James Bond. You didn't especially want to do You didn't want to make it part of this, and we weren't sure would we do it as another, a whole other episode? Would we do it as a different show? So what I'm probably going to do is just sort of have a splinter show, if you will like a five-by-five goes-to-the-movies kind of thing as a place where this show and maybe others like it, where we go, what we're doing is we're talking about Goodfellas. And I will probably watch the movie at least two or three more times before Monday when we are set to talk about the show. Just so that I feel fully, you know, back up to speed. I've probably only seen the movie 50 or 60 times so far. So I will... I want to see it a few more times before I feel I'm ready to really talk about it. But the last time that I watched it, I had, I realized I had a very different perspective on it than I did. Well, I would say as a, as a young man, but really as a kid, when I was watching it, I'm now having a family, didn't really have a family. The first time I saw it the same way you, your opinion changes. You have a whole different take on Henry. I'm looking forward to talking about this with you. Yeah, so it's, people, it's a special. Like a TV memory kids and they had the special where they had the little uh the little word special it would spin at you with that music with the percussion. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. It's a special. It's not it's not gonna be all the time. Lord knows we have a hard well, enough may, time. Maybe finding, it's only once. Finding time. Well, you know, never know. We could do the Godfather ones after at some point. But you know, scheduling, we already talked about how it's difficult to get our schedules together for more than just our weekly show, but it's a special, it's a treat. People are asking if it will be live and when it will be. It is It is currently scheduled to be live. I believe it's live, right? Yeah, we'll do it live. Why not? Yeah. Uh, After it, we'll do it live. We'll do, <laughs> we'll do it live. And it will be at uh, 12 noon Eastern on uh, Monday, 
uh, which is the, what is that? The, what day is it? Thir- today is the 13th, so that will 16th. be the 16th. And uh, people are welcome to tune in. Now, here's another question for you. Will, uh, I, there's so few potentials for this uh, on a show without us having to like bleep everything, but do you, do you want to have sound bites? My thinking was that we, we might want to have sound bites. Uh, it was out of respect. You know, we want to have that. Uh, if we have sound bites, I don't know if they need to be done live. I think sound bites are often better put in later so they no, can, I can cue them precisely all. cued. I can cue them all out, man. I have this whole soundboard thing here. I can cue, yeah. I can cue up a couple hundred sound effects if you want, if, as long yeah. as you give me a list ahead of time. Uh, I don't know if I have things that I want to queue up in particular. So oh, you I, can just, I mean, we all, we all know what you're going to, you know, this, this popular scenes and sayings that I think we can remember. But the thing is, if I, if I mention something, you don't have the clip ready. So what? you, you could add it in post. Yeah. All right. Uh, but I, you know, really, I would imagine the people listening to the show have already seen the movie enough that they can hear the clips in their head. But yeah, it'll be nice to have the, the clips added in there. I'll, I we'll see what we can do. I don't want to promise anything. Yeah. Because I mean, otherwise, well, the other thing is we don't want to end up just playing the whole movie. It's <laughs> really, you know, like, oh, what about we could. this, you know, what about that, you know, and you end up playing the whole movie. Uh, so, and Lord knows I'm going to have enough to talk about. <laughs> oh, what a good move. So, so we want to set a cap. We want to set a cap at uh, about four or five hours. No, yeah, no going like beyond that. Right. So by dinner time, we should wrap it up. We could use the, uh, the, the Merlin cap. You know what that is? I do not know what that is. But you got to get up and piss the show's over. No, Right. <laughs> Although some, he's he's gone through that. Sometimes he'd be like, "Oh, hang on, can you pause a second? I gotta go. I gotta go yeah, take a leak." And he do that once or twice, at least. I think it's he all, does it almost every week. It's all about bladder capacity. Yeah. So that's, that's how long the show's going to be. All right. So everybody can tune in on that for Monday, or if not, uh, you can uh, you can go to five by five TV and you'll you'll see it there. It will be there, and uh, of course we will also probably refer back to it and give the URL in the next episode of this show, Hypocritical. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in and hanging out with us for the last year. Yep, it's been a blast. I really appreciate all the listeners and all the feedback, and especially the people in the chat room, our loyal, our most loyal of our loyal listeners. Right. Regardless of the size of their hands, we, we appreciate them. So have a good week. You too.